we know there to be three great and distinct periods of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, his mortal life and ministry, a period of around 33 years. Then following his resurrection and being seen of his disciples 40 days, he then ascends to sit at his father's right hand, a period of about 2,000 years. And then, of course, we have the age to come, where he will return to reign as king over all the earth. And I'm sure we could all say a lot about the first and third periods there, his ministry and his return. But what about the middle one? What is Jesus doing now whilst at his father's right hand? Well, that will be the focus of our considerations tonight, God willing. The current work of Christ as comprehensively as we can in 50 minutes. A subject which I don't think gets the focus of the ministry or the kingdom of Christ, but is very significant nonetheless. Because in each of these three epochs, the role of our Lord changes slightly, but he does extremely significant work in each of them. He's certainly not sat at his father's right hand doing nothing but await the day of his return. He lives and is extremely active in our lives. Hebrews 13 verse 8 is an interesting verse. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, which suggests to these three different epochs. And the apostles are also told at his ascension, this same Jesus, which is taken up into heaven, would return in like manner. So whilst his work changes in each epoch, it's the same Lord working in all three. And we'll make the important point at the outset that whatever the work of Christ is now, it has to be consistent with the plan and purpose of the Father to fill the earth ultimately with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And as we shall see, God willing, that's exactly the focus of Christ's work to bring about that age and to prepare us for it. Before we think about any of that, though, we need to appreciate the position of Christ in the grand scheme of God's plan and purpose. Because this, I believe, is of utmost importance to understanding this subject. Christ has been exalted. He hasn't just ascended to the Father. He has been exalted to his Father's right hand. I'd like us to turn to a passage that shows us that Ephesians chapter 1 I'll put more passages on the screen in a moment but we need to appreciate the greatness of Christ Ephesians chapter 1 and we'll pick up at verse 19 Paul prays that the Ephesians may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us would who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this aeon, this age, but also in the age to come. So there we go, Christ has already been exalted to the position of greatness that he will have in the kingdom and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So Christ didn't just ascend into heaven, he was of course exalted to a position of greatness and authority at the right hand of his father. He already has a name above every name. He is greater, higher and more important than any other person in history and has far more authority than anyone on earth, even the angels. He is above all principality and power. It is God's own son whom he has exalted. And we see that in other passages as well. Philippians chapter 2 says, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 explain how Christ is greater and higher than the angels. 
and Revelation 5, of course, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honour, glory and blessing. So Christ has already been exalted to a position of greatness. That's not something he receives when he returns, it's something he already has. He will return to take the royal diadem and to be crowned king of God's kingdom, but he has already been exalted to a position of power and greatness, following the victory wrought for us in his death. And I do think that's a crucial point when we consider his current work, because the greatness and glory which his Father has given him allows us to understand why the Father has placed matters of enormous importance into his hand. And we shall see that in due course. Something which complements this study is a study of the titles and descriptions of, that Jesus is given in Scripture, particularly after his ascension and exaltation in the New Testament. And there is a very small selection on the screen. He's the chief shepherd, the alpha, the omega, the prince, the lord, the great high priest, and so much more besides, there are actually hundreds more. So these help us to appreciate the greatness of Christ, but also they help us to realise that the current work of Christ is actually made up of several different roles. The work of a chief shepherd, for example, is a different work to that of a great high priest. But the New Testament tells us that they are both aspects of his current work, along with other things. And in preparation for this talk, I've been through hopefully all of the major passages that apply to Jesus now and any work he does now. I think the vast majority of them can be put into one of, or in, in multiple cases in some cases, of these four main categories. So I suggest these are the four main areas of Christ's current work. We'll think about these more later, but just for now, thought it might be helpful to see the direction in which we're heading, God willing. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ oversees the angelic host. And there is a whole host of evidence for this in the New Testament. Command of the angels is a responsibility given to him upon his exaltation. 1 Peter 3 verse 22 is a key verse that tells us that angels, authorities and powers are subject unto Christ. He's the head of the ecclesia. This is a broad subject in itself. I think it includes things such as the chief shepherd, the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone of the spiritual house of God, etc. These are all different analogies used. But they're all telling us that we look to Jesus as the head of the ecclesia. As long as he is absent from us, he is performing a great work of nourishing and tending to his flock, sanctifying his bride and building the house. He's the righteous judge of all the earth. Our reading in John 5 told us that the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. And he is the high priest and intercessor. Numerous references tell us that Christ makes intercession for us in the presence of God. This is actually one we won't have time to look at tonight. It's a step too far. We've already got more than enough here. Um, but I'll add it in, in, in the interest of completeness. So I suggest these are the main areas of Christ's current, what, current work. And we'll get to those later, as I say. Now, at this point, there's a small verse in John chapter 3, which I'd like us to go to, please. To pull out several principles, which I hope will be helpful. And this is only a very short verse, but incredibly profound. And to me, it's enormously important with regards to this subject. It's John 3, verse 35. I'm actually going to read this four times in four different ways because each time we can emphasise something different with regards to Christ's exhortation to power. These are actually the words of John the Baptist, but he is speaking of the authority and power that the Father would eventually give to the Son. 
And he says, the father loveth the son and hath given all things into his hand. The father loveth the son. The son has been exalted because the father loves him. And that's Philippians 2 again, isn't it? The son in his ministry humbled himself as a servant and was obedient to death because that was the will of his father. Wherefore, says Philippians 2, verse 9, God hath highly exalted him. He was exalted because the father loved him and vindicated his work. And Jesus in Isaiah is God's servant in whom his soul delighted and he has been exalted and extolled. God's beloved son in whom he was well pleased and therefore God has given all things into his hand. John 3 verse 35 again. The father loveth the son and hath given all things into his hand. It's been God's plan from the beginning of creation to send his purpose in his son and that he may be glorified in the son. It's always been God's plan to give all things unto him in this sense. Psalm 8 speaks of that. The ultimate dominion of man over all creation. The New Testament confirms that this speaks preeminently of Christ. Fulfilled in the kingdom in the terms of all things being put under his feet. But in terms of power and authority, Hebrews 2 tells us that he is already crowned with glory and honour. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. All things. That's not an insignificant phrase. It's a very profound one. All things given into the hand of the Son. And it was a, a pleasant surprise to me, actually, when I searched all things and realised quite how profound it was in Scripture. Quite fascinating. Could take us all over the place if we had time, but... Just one or two references here, which give us an idea of what this means. Colossians 1 tells us that by him, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of a new creation in Christ, by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And by him all things consist. So four times in those verses the phrase all things. And again Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 10. The name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things in earth and things under the earth. And I think that applies to Christ both now and in the future. These, are all, these things are all part of what God has given into his hand. John 3 verse 35. The father loveth the son. And hath given all things into his hand. <clears throat> given into his hand. This speaks of things that were once in the father's care. And in the father's control. <clears throat> have now been given to the son to oversee. <clears throat> Key point to remember here. The father is of course absolutely <clears throat> supreme. And always will be. It's important that we keep that perspective, even when we're considering the greatness and the exaltation of Christ. God is still above him. Because the things which have been given into the hand of the Son are only things which the Father has delegated to him. The Father is supreme and has given these things into the hand of the Son. Important to remember that. But of course, the Son operates in total accordance with the will of his father, he is at work in his father's plan and purpose. And Brother Roger Lewis, in his studies on the current role of Christ, uses an excellent phrase, I think, which I'll just quote. And it's this. Ever since the ascension of Christ, there has been a dramatic change in the modus operandi of God. It would, of course, be correct to say that preeminently God works in our lives but also it's true to say that Christ works in our lives because God has exalted him to this position the New Testament tells us that both of those statements are accurate because to Christ has been given responsibility of the work of the angels of judgment and of care of the ecclesia 
etc. God is working through the Son and has given all things unto him. We don't know exactly how that works. Maybe they are effectively working together. Maybe there are conversations in heaven. We don't know how they operate, brothers and sisters. But what we do know is that the Father has given all things into his hand. So when is John 3 verse 35 fulfilled? When does the Father give all things into the hand of the Son? Well, Matthew 28 is an excellent cross-reference and a key verse in this subject. It tells us it was when he ascended to heaven. Jesus says to his disciples, moments before his ascension in Matthew 28, <coughs> this is where we get the title for tonight's class from, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And at the end of verse 20, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The moment of his ascension was the moment he was exalted and the moment all power was given unto him in heaven and in earth. His exaltation. So let's start thinking about some of Christ's current work then and just try to build up our considerations of what Jesus is doing now. As I say, we don't have time to look at his work as the great high priest, but we'll just give the other three some thoughts. <coughs> Starting then with his control over the angels. So 1 Peter 3, verse 21 and 22, speaks of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels, authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So the angels are subject unto Christ. Christ has control over the angelic host, a responsibility given to him upon his ascension. And when we think of the work of the angels, we know how they are at work in the political scenes of the kingdoms of men. And how they are very busy at work in our own lives, working to develop and mould us as disciples. And so they work to bring about God's plan and purpose in both of those ways. And more perhaps. And the Lord Jesus Christ is directing this because the angels are now subject unto him. Does he, therefore, know the day of his return? Because he did say during his ministry that but of that day and now knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. I suggest this is something which has changed following his exhortation. It's an interesting verse in John 5 for that. The father loveth the son and showeth him all things that himself doeth. That's an echo, of course, back to John chapter 3. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. But I want us to go to Revelation chapter 5, which is a really wonderful chapter about the exaltation of the Lamb. And illustrates to us, I suggest, that Jesus now has this knowledge of God's timetable. So, come with me there, please. Revelation 5, verse 1. There is a book sealed with seven seals in the right hand of God. <coughs> we know what this book with seven seals is because the seals are opened in chapter 6 and chapter 8, and begin the continuous historic prophecies in the Apocalypse. This book contained details of future events. So this book, at the start of Revelation 5, is in the right hand of God. Revelation 5 verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven or in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. So the situation was that no man was worthy to open the book. No man has been able to see the details of the workings of God. And then verse 5, one of the elders saith unto me, 
Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. No man was worthy, but there had been no man like the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. And that is emphasised throughout Revelation 5. The Lamb is worthy. And so verse 7, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So what does it mean symbolically, he came and took the book out of his right hand? I suggest it means that both knowledge and control of the future are given unto him. H.P. Mansfield says in the Revelation Expositor that taking the book symbolises the actual performance of the things written therein. And so the Lord Jesus subsequently knows the details of the future with regards to God's plan and purpose. I believe he now knows the day and hour of his return. And I think this is logical because he's working to direct the angels that they might bring about God's plan and purpose ultimately for the right moment for him to return to establish God's kingdom. Just moving on in a sense, the book of Acts offers really interesting insight into how the Lord Jesus worked with the apostles after his departure. And we get a couple of interesting examples of angelic work under the authority of Christ. One of those is Acts chapter 12. I'll just show this on the screen. Or you can turn it if you like. When Peter is released from prison, and Brother Roger mentioned this passage this morning. Herodus imprisons Peter. And then the angel, of course, delivers him. Acts 12, verse 7, says, Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and the light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. But then in verse 11, when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod. Then in verse 17, but Peter, beckoning unto them with the hands to hold, hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Just the Lord in verse 17. There's no mention of the angel in verse 17. This is the work of the Lord through the angels, in this case in protecting Peter. Now, it can be a tricky aspect of this subject, working out who the Lord is in New Testament passages. Is it Christ or is it God? Even with a conservative analysis, brothers and sisters, I think in a large majority of cases in Acts, the Lord is Christ, most cases. And actually in epistles too, I suggest that the majority of times the Lord is Christ. Now, I do think that's the case here in Acts 12. He had promised his disciples he would be with them in this age and that he would be working with them. And we know the angels are subject unto him. I think this is an example of a small outworking of that, in this case, in protecting Peter. So let's move on to think about Christ as the head of the ecclesia. Plenty of New Testament passages talk about Jesus as the head of the Ecclesia. It's definitely a noticeable thread. But what does Christ as the head of the Ecclesia actually involve? <coughs> I suggested earlier it's a rather broad subject and includes ideas such as the shepherd, the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone and others. And Brother Simon this morning consider Jesus as the head of the body and Brother Roger mentioned Christ as the chief cornerstone as well. So we'll just take one or two trains of thought with regards to this subject. For one thing, 
Christ is actively building his ecclesia. Remember the famous words he said to Peter in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16. Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. The rock we know to be Christ. Notice the words, I will build my ecclesia. This is Christ's work. And again, we notice an interesting thread in the Acts of the Apostles. We're told at the end of Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, verse 20, the Lord worked with them after his ascension. The Lord was active with the apostles in that age. And of course, he still works with us today. But we have recorded in Acts some interesting examples of how the Lord began to build his ecclesia. Acts 2, verse 47 the Lord added to the ecclesia daily such as, such as should be saved. Acts 5 verse 14. Believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes both of men and women. Acts 9 shows how the Lord Jesus himself selected Saul of Tarsus. A man who spent his life persecuting the Ecclesia, but Jesus selected him as a chosen vessel to bear his name. Acts 11 records the very significant example of the establishment of the first Gentile Ecclesia at Antioch. In verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them in this effort and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And also the example of Lydia. In Acts 16, verse 14, whose heart the Lord opened. These are examples of how the Lord Jesus worked to build his ecclesia with the apostles, a work that is still ongoing until his return. Because there's no doubt about it, brothers and sisters, Christ is extremely active as the head of his ecclesia. Come with me, please, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have, of course, the seven letters to the Ecclesias. The words of Christ himself to the Ecclesias. So it's most interesting in regards to this subject as to what he has to say to his Ecclesias. Revelation 2 verse 1. <coughs> and to the angel of the Ecclesia at Ephesus writes, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now that's an interesting thought. What are the seven stars? Chapter 1, verse 20 tells us they are the angels of the seven ecclesias. So that's another verse that tells us Christ has authority over the angels. He has the seven stars in his right hand and walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands. What are the seven golden lampstands? Chapter 1, verse 20, the seven ecclesias. Christ walks in the midst of the Ecclesias, brothers and sisters. That's a wonderful phrase used to represent the fact he is always present with us. He sees everything and he takes a great interest in his Ecclesias. He walks amongst us, as it were. And we also get that idea in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. But he knows our works, verse 2, and sees everything we do and works with us in wonderful ways. In the seven letters, we get a really fascinating insight into that. What Christ sees, thinks and does as he walks in the midst of the ecclesias. And there will be some overlap here, actually, because this is absolutely, I believe, part of his role as the head of the ecclesia to walk amongst us. But it's also... I believe, part of the responsibility of judgment that has also been committed unto him. And so we'll return to the seven letters in a few minutes. But what is the Lord's objective as to his work as the head of the Ecclesia? Why does he walk in the midst of the Ecclesias? I think we get a, a beautiful idea in Ephesians chapter 5. So we'll just turn to Ephesians chapter 5. 
Ephesians 5, starting at verse 23. This is a passage that's well known to us in the context of the husband and the wife. I just want to look at it purely in the context of Christ's work with his ecclesia for now. So I think this is his objective as our head. Ephesians 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ the head of the ecclesia, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the ecclesia is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So the ecclesia is subject unto Christ. Christ has authority over us as our head. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the ecclesia and gave himself for it. And that was, of course, a cheese in his death, wasn't it? And verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious ecclesia, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The Lord Jesus Christ's ultimate objective, brothers and sisters, is to present his ecclesia, his bride, glorious unto himself. This was the reason he laid down his life for us, and that's why he works with us now. Verse 28, so also so ought men to love their wives to their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the Ecclesia. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The Lord died out of love for us all, but we should remember that he continues to love us, to nourish and cherish, cherish his ecclesia as the head of the ecclesia, because he wants to present us as his bride, glorious unto himself. He works with us in ways which, as we shall see, very much include the trying of our faith, because he wants to sanctify his bride, that the Father may be glorified in him, in his bride when he returns. Remember, God's plan and purpose is right at the core of Christ's current work. And so we move on to consider Christ as the judge for a few moments. And this principle is spelt out to us by the Lord himself in the reading we had in John chapter 5. <coughs> haven't actually spent much time here tonight, but I've alluded to a few verses, and I'm sure you can see it's an important chapter, a prophecy from Christ about his exaltation. John 5, reading again from verse 21. But as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son, honoureth not the Father which hath sent him. So there we have it. Judgment is a role committed to Christ. We read that again in verse 27. The Father is, the Father hath given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. The responsibility of judgment is given to Christ. And what an enormous responsibility that is. The whole world at his return will be judged by Christ. All the saints from all ages will stand before him at the judgment seat. And it's his decision to give life or otherwise. And of course the nations will be subject to Christ's judgment as well. Excuse me a sec while I overheat. And just picking up verse 30 of John 5, a great principle concerning the judgment of Christ. I can of my own, own self do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just or righteous, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. His judgment is righteous, 
and in total accordance with the will of his father, for reasons we have already discussed. But is this just a future role, brothers and sisters, or is it a current one as well? I think it's most certainly a current one as well. Christ is already judging and has been ever since all judgment was committed to him at his ascension. I want us to go back to Revelation 2. So in these seven letters, I think the work of Christ as the judge leaps off the page, really. And we could absolutely consider these references in the light of how Christ works with his ecclesia. They show that as well. But I think we also see Christ as the judge with regards to what he has to say to the ecclesias. Revelation 2, verse 2 to Ephesus. I know thy works, and thy labour, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast laboured, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy lampstand out of this place, except thou repent. Christ knows our works. He can see everything. He recognises the good and the bad. He knows our works. That's something he says to all seven ecclesias. There is nothing hidden from him. He walks amongst the midst of the ecclesias out of love and care for them. Because he wants to present them glorious unto himself as his redeemed bride. But he also does so with the watchful eyes of the one unto whom has been committed all judgment. It's absolutely a current work of the Lord. We can see that in these letters. He knows their works and tells them in most cases to repent. And depending on what he sees, he works in our lives accordingly. Have a look at the serious words to Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. The Lord saw this wicked doctrine that hearkened back to Jezebel and they had opportunity, he gave opportunity for the Ecclesia to repent. How much opportunity have we already had, brothers and sisters, to remove anything that may be a stumbling block to us and how much more opportunity will we get? Verse 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the ecclesias shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto you every and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Jesus is the judge, and a big part of this work in the present age is to search the reins and the hearts. To see what we're made of, brothers and sisters, and to bring us back if need be, and mould us into vessels fit for his use in his kingdom and in chapter 3 verse 19 we can see this absolutely includes chastening the trials in our lives as many as i love i rebuke and chasten be zealous therefore and repent there are examples of the trial of our faith in the seven letters we've seen that at thyatira perhaps and also revelation 2 verse 10 this is Smyrna, of whom there is nothing negative to say, but their faith must still be tried. Revelation 2 verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The point being is that the Lord, as part of his current work, watches our every move. He is our judge. And he must try our faith. 
He rebukes and chastens us out of love, that he may present us glorious if we respond. Obviously, trials can be extremely difficult times for us, periods of tribulation indeed. Hebrews 12 explains, No chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. But what a difference it could make, brothers and sisters, to our day-to-day behaviour as we strive obediently to serve him if we remember that he truly sees everything we do. He hears everything we say, knows everything we think. If he was physically stood with us, would we listen to the same music, watch the same videos or sports, have the same conversations at work, socialise with the same people, do the same amount of Bible study, focus our attention on the same things, if he was physically with us. The silly thing is, I know that some of my behaviour would be extremely different. That shouldn't be the case, should it? We should act as though the Lord is with us, because he does walk amongst us and he does see everything. And he knows our works. It's a powerful and challenging thing to consider. It's only when he returns that we will discover his final judgment. He will render to every man according to his works. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 tells us he will bring to light the hidden works of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. He will, of course, give life to the faithful. You and I, we pray that we may live and reign with him to the glory of the Father. So we've had some brief thoughts about the current work of Christ. I hope it's been useful. And I'm happy to discuss anything after the session. There's one final train of thought I'd like to finish with, though. It's more of a question rather than anything. How do we honour the Son? that was what Jesus told us we should do in John chapter 5 verse 23. All men should honour the Son even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son honoureth not the Father which sent him. I think these words are surely very important and it is a natural area to consider when we think about Christ now. How do we honour him? To honour means to revere or to fix value upon, to have in honour. It's a commandment from the Son himself that we should honour him as we also honour the Father. Both Christ and the Father should be preeminent in our lives. What should our relationship with Christ be like? Because it certainly shouldn't be sterile. We mustn't neglect the Lord Jesus, brothers and sisters. He lives and we are told to honour him. But what does honouring Christ look like for a disciple? Should we, for example, pray or sing hymns to Jesus? Is this honouring the Son? Now, I'm very much aware that people have different opinions on these matters, brothers and sisters. I do respect that and I really don't wish to be controversial. I tread sensitively here, but... These are questions that do get asked from time to time. I've been asked about them in preparation for this. I do think they're relevant to our thoughts tonight and they build upon our thoughts tonight. And I will say that I'm not sure we can be dogmatic on either of these. And they're certainly a matter of conscience, but definitely worth our consideration. And I'm very much open to discussion afterwards. I do think the scriptures give a strong indication that prayer should be directed to the Father through Christ. We get that directive from Jesus in John chapters 14, 15 and 16. Chapters that are addressed to his disciples about his departure. And we see it elsewhere, prayer to the Father offered through Christ. So... That seems to be the clear indication from scripture. One might say, however, what about the half dozen or so examples in the New Testament of conversing with Jesus after his ascension? For example, Stephen when he died, 
or when Paul besought the Lord thrice for his thorn in the flesh to be removed? That's a very valid question and I would make the observation that each of these seem to be in response to a physical vision or interaction with the Lord, the like of which we don't have today. I therefore think that with regards to prayer, we should take the directive of Jesus himself and offer it to the Father through him. Another question, are prayers the same as singing hymns? Well, they can be. Hymns can definitely be prayers. Some of the hymns in our hymn book are prayers. I think this is actually subjective, though. What you might consider a prayer may be different to what I consider a prayer, as written down in a hymn book. Maybe it's down to one's own interpretation or conscience. But if we do deem a hymn to be a prayer to Christ, maybe we should question whether or not we should sing that hymn on the basis that the scriptures seem to tell us that prayer should be reserved for the Father. I'm not sure, however, that all hymns are prayers by any stretch. I've got a quote here from an article in the Christadelphian magazine, and I'm led to believe one member of our audience will recognise this very well. It's from 2001 as well, and that's significant it's around the time of our hymn book change. It's an interesting quote, raises a suggestion that hymns could be things other than prayer. Suggestions are made that they can be acclamations, statements of truth, appeals, expressions of heartfelt thanks. And also that hymns to Jesus have appeared in all Christadelphian hymn books since the time of Brother Robert. So I definitely think it's an area worth consideration. I do wonder if valid points are raised there. And I'll just offer my suggestion on this subject in line of what we've considered tonight. And I stress again, I'm not sure we can be dogmatic and it's a matter of conscience. I certainly don't think all hymns are prayers, even if they're sung in the first person. I've got a list on the screen of different people, places or things that we do actually sing to commonly in our hymn books. Garden of Gethsemane, Judah, Brethren, Jerusalem. Of all things we sing to, these can't all be prayers. And I think the answer to this has to be that the poetic structure of hymns by nature gives licence to sing in the first person in ways of praise, reverence, statements of truth or otherwise. Hymns aren't necessarily prayers. Prayer is different to praise. And one thing we can be dogmatic about is that we will praise Christ in the kingdom. Revelation 5 and other passages make that absolutely clear, but we won't pray to him. And Psalm 72 actually differentiates between them in a kingdom context. Prayer should be made for him continually. Daily he shall be praised. So prayer and praise are different in the kingdom and they are different now, I suggest. We won't pray to Christ in the kingdom, but we will sing to him. We'll sing the song of Revelation 5, a hymn of praise that addresses Christ, for he is worthy. And we have worthy of the Lamb as one of our hymns, don't we, in our hymn book. I think that's probably notable, because if we were to sing the words of Revelation 5, or other scriptures perhaps, such as Psalm 45 or parts of Song of Solomon. To me, we would be singing both the words of scripture and singing these scriptures to Christ, I would argue. And Second Peter 3 is significant because that tells us that Christ is worthy of glory. Whoops. Christ is worthy of glory both now and forever. In a spiritual sense, he is present among us. He has already been exalted and will be praised in the kingdom for that reason. And that, and it won't take away in the kingdom from honouring the Father, but rather it will glorify the Father. I think that's, that comes from Philippians 2. And for these reasons, brothers and sisters, my opinion is that Christ is worthy of praise in this age also. As, of course, we continue to praise God 
but as I say, I'm aware and respectful that others have different views and I'd, I'd be happy to discuss it afterwards. We can be absolutely dogmatic that the chief way in which we can honour the Son is by being obedient to his commandments. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. We can honour and revere him by being obedient unto his commandments, brothers and sisters. This is of utmost importance. And we can honour him also by remembering him through our memorials. At the start of each week, this is of course one of his commandments. We must ensure that we are giving honour to the Son in our lives. For this again is one of his commandments. So we've considered tonight as much as I've been able to fit in really with regards to the current work of Christ. We've seen how the Father has exalted him and given him authority of overseeing matters of huge significance in God's plan and purpose. He is directing the angels. He is walking amongst the midst of the ecclesias, working to present them glorious unto himself. And he works as our righteous judge, searching the reins in the hearts, awaiting the day when he will return to bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of our hearts. <coughs> so maybe the, the takeaway point with us is to remember that he is very much active in our lives, that he is working with us and that he does see everything that we do. And let us therefore strive to be obedient unto him and be ready for him when he returns to judge the earth and establish his father's kingdom and begin the next epoch of his great work. Thank you.